Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we will be talking about Ukrainian refugees and all of the economic questions associated with that issue. So stick around for that. But first, we wanted to do something that's not exactly from the news necessarily, but it is tied to current events. So the data point I have here is 132. That is in years, 132 years. That's the number of years that May 1st has been a de facto Labor Day in many countries around the world. It seems like it's every country, almost, uh, if you start digging from Latin America to Africa to Europe, that countries celebrate Labor Day on May Day, May 1st, of course, or maybe not, of course. The, the big exception here is the United States, as well as Canada. We, we, we celebrate uh, Labor Day in September. But this is an international day for thinking about work and thinking about trade unions, and it struck me as a opportunity for us to, to do the same. Adam, yeah, I guess just to, to, to get to that point that I was just talking about, I, I wonder if you could explain for us why America's Labor Day exactly is in September while the rest of the world is celebrating Labor Day on, on May 1st. And maybe this has something to do with the fact that Labor Day, in, in at least in my experience that I've seen here in Germany, it sort of has a very different character. Uh, maybe you could describe that a little bit as well compared to the kind of just day off from work that Americans mark in September? Well, well, in fact, both the International Workers' Day on, on May 1st and US Labor Day are celebrations of organized labor and of, of labor in both the United States and everywhere else. And they, in fact, both originate in the United States. So the the historical origin of this goes back to um, the eight-hour day campaign that was conducted really around the world in the late 19th century. And in 1885, the American Federation of Labor launched a campaign for an eight-hour day, which was going to culminate in a strike um, on the 1st of May, 1886. It's quite common throughout cultures around the world to have festivals which celebrate labor at the beginning of uh, the summer and in the fall. Um, and so May 1st was picked for this for this uh, this event in the United States, and, and it resulted in Chicago on May 1st, 1886. In fact, for the best part of a week in early May 1886 in the in the in the Haymarket affair, you know, this fantastically violent confrontation between 
Labour protesters, a, a bomb was thrown at the police, the police respond with firing on the workers, they then arrest a bunch of Labour leaders, they hang them, and there is a, a, a extraordinarily violent repression of organised labour across the Midwest in that first week of May 1886. And that became an international cause célèbre. And it was three years later, in 1889, in Paris, at the first Congress of the Second International, the global socialist movement, that a French delegate proposed that workers around the world ought to commemorate the Haymarket massacres through a action, a protest, a strike, a day of celebration on May 1st. So the date is chosen to commemorate an act of American state violence. It's quite close, in other words, to Hmm. Black Lives Matter in its kind of spirit. It's a moment of collective global outrage at uh, this extraordinarily violent episode in America's labor history. Perhaps unsurprisingly, friends of labor in the United States were cautious about adopting that date as as their date for a, a labor festival. Trade union organisers were in the habit of staging banquets, picnics, festivals early in September. And so it's this date which is adopted by centrist American labour activists and ultimately by the Democratic presidential candidate Grover Cleveland adopts this demand of the American labour movement and enacts it by congressional decision in 1894 And it's on that basis that from 1896 onwards, across most of the states of the United States, Labor Day is celebrated as a national festival of labor. That is fascinating. I mean, in some sense, it sounds like you're saying the American Labor Day was selected in September precisely to avoid this association with the kind of martyrdom of unions. The extreme contentiousness of that. Yes, the extreme contentiousness of that. The search for something that could serve as a more national rallying point for Labour. You can see the political value in that. Whereas other people, of course, who are interested in highlighting the violence of American capitalism, for them, it's much easier to single out that day. And it also makes sense, I guess, the flip side of this, which is in those countries that do have May 1st Labour Days, maybe that's why, in my again, my experience, I sort of noticed... There is this kind of emphasis on worker demonstrations still. There is a kind of political emphasis on these May 1st, May Day celebrations. I don't know. In in a certain sense, when I was looking into this, it seems like, especially in the early days, these kind of May Day celebrations were, as you're describing, even had a kind of revolutionary character. They seemed a bit militant in their approach to labor issues. I mean, I wonder whether the fact that it's a public holiday now, has that itself changed the nature of the kind of union demonstrations? I mean, is this a broader story of labor unions getting sort of co-opted by the existing economic system over time? To a degree, yes. Though you could say, of course, that the demand for an eight-hour day and a public holiday are not revolutionary demands at any point. They're, They're reformist. They are radical reforms in the late 19th century, but they are essentially reformist demands. I think, broadly speaking, globally, you can distinguish three types of May Day celebration, the disrupted revolutionary protests. On the other hand, celebrations of organized labor by recognized official trade unions. And then thirdly, literally state-backed May Day festivals that affirm the, you know, the ideology of socialist regimes. And these models echo back and forth. I mean, in the late 60s, early 70s, unsurprisingly, the giant May Day celebrations in Red Square in Moscow became showcases for the Vietnamese resistance against uh, the Americans. And the American anti-war movement took this up and staged in 1970, and then even more spectacularly in 1971, gigantic, spontaneous 
much more revolutionary, you could say, insurgent May Day celebrations across the United States. There was a student strike in 1970, a giant mobilization, 500,000 people converging on DC in 1971, um, with the aim literally of swamping the jails and just breaking the judicial and police system by the sheer mass of people they would have to arrest. In a country like South Africa, you can see, as it were, the entire genealogy of this. So South Africa's labor movement, the mine workers above all, celebrated May Day celebrations in various forms from the early 20th century onwards. But the really climactic event came in 1950 when the apartheid regime that was really establishing its grip at the time tried to ban the Communist Party. And in the face of that, the South African communists staged a rally on May 1st, and it resulted in a notorious incident of killing in in Soweto. And the young Nelson Mandela, in fact, famously had to take refuge in a nurse's dormitory overnight to escape the South African police. And the cause was then taken up again quite deliberately in the 1980s in the in the course of the most dramatic final stages of anti-apartheid demonstrations uh, with COSATU, the new South African Labour Union Federation in 86, staging a giant demonstration. 1.5 million people went out on strike and it really forced the apartheid regime to react. It's one of the you know symbolic moments really of mass anti-apartheid protest on May Day, not coincidentally, both as regime at the time attempted to do an American trick by saying, right, well, we won't do that day, but we'll do the first Friday in May, to which Casatu said, well, then we'll strike and we'll take both days off. And it's not coincidental that in 1994, when the first genuinely free and fair and universal elections were held in South Africa, May Day was established there as a truly important public holiday uh, for the post-apartheid country. This does lead to, I guess, some more general questions about whether organized labor is necessarily on the left on some of these issues. Clearly, they want better working conditions. That much is obvious. But can that project be separated from a basket of other progressive causes? I mean, that does seem to be the populist project, from what I can tell, you know, of conservative parties across the West right now, right? The really defining event, I think, in the history of this is World War One, because um, that great total war posed the question of whether you could be a trade unionist and oppose the war, uh, or did that make you a traitor? If so, who did you owe loyalty to? Were you willing to go the whole hog and commit yourself to global revolution at the expense of your own country? And so instead, what emerges in almost all participants are various national labor movements, de facto or explicitly, um, de facto in the sense that in Britain, in Germany, in France, the labour movement tended to align itself with the national war effort, but some wanted to go further and to turn that into an ideology, expose the fact that socialism's one big mistake was to deny the nation. And out of that comes fascism, literally in the sense that Mussolini was previously a well-known socialist journalist who decided that the mistake was to to deny nationalism and committed himself to it. And you see it in, in Hitler's movement as well, right? The, the amalgam of Hitler's movement's name, Nazi, stands for NSDAP, which is National Socialist German Workers' Party. National Socialist German Worker, right? That seesawing back and forth is what's constitutive of the movement. And um, in the 1930s, as in fascism in Italy in the 1920s, both regimes created labor fronts, national organizations of welfare, including women in both cases. So working class women, peasant women were enrolled in these. They in both cases provided real benefits in forms of welfare, but at the same time, of course, suppressed any autonomous workers movement and de facto had the the effect of repressing wages and 
creating space for both surplus to be earned for investment, but also for much larger profits for business. Uh, but this is a deep, deep, deep tension that runs through the entire labor movement, right? Is the, is the main aim of the labor movement to uh, fight for labor against capital in general, or is the more obvious thing to do to defend one group of workers against another? Mm. And so right from the very beginning of the socialist labor movement, there has been a fundamental set of questions around migration and your willingness to stand for open borders and a true cosmopolitanism in that sense, which is, of course, incredibly demanding in its implications, or whether you favor the restriction of labor. So massively xenophobic anti-Chinese campaigns, for instance, are typical of the labor movement, both in Britain and the United States and in Australia as well, around the turn of the century, um, because the yellow peril is interpreted not just as geopolitical, but above all as a threat to uh, white labor. So finally, obviously, it seems in general, labor unions are less central to a lot of our societies in the West than uh, they used to be. And, and, and that's often attributed to the decline of the industrial economy. But I don't know, for me, that raised the question of why exactly is the post-industrial economy so much harder to unionize? I mean, is there something about manufacturing jobs that makes them easier to unionize than service jobs? Yeah, there's a sort of superficial logic here, isn't there, which which says, well, yeah, or you'd think so, obviously, right? The classic factory, the giant works employing thousands of workers that spill out, at, you know, on the sounding of a factory clock or bell or gong at a particular time of day, live in tenement housing around the factory. All of this creates a sense of uniformity and solidarity that it's easy to imagine uh, unionizing. And this goes very deep all the way into the philosophy of Marx and Engels, right? The idea is that the worker ultimately represents the human, the generically human, precisely because the worker is stripped of all particular attributes by the process of production. Hmm. And so that's, as it were, then where the collective ambition of organization comes from. And, and sociologically speaking, certain industries did create that kind of uniformity. If you lived in a mining community in Pennsylvania or Wales in Britain, you know, work and life were very routinized around the pit. Um, it was male work. Women uh, remained at home. The men worked on shift and, and uh, were in that sense bound together, whether they liked it or not, in a kind of collectivity. And it's not for you know, by coincidence that one of the most famous unions in the United States is the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, hmm. right? It's literally understood as a kind of fraternity tied together by common genealogy in, in that sense. But it's also striking, after all, that it is Teamsters, and Teamsters aren't industrial workers in any conventional sense of the work, right? They, they drive trucks and they manage logistics. It's actually a service sector. So I think that, to me, points to the fact there's something, something really quite fundamentally misleading about this, right? Why would we imagine that the conditions for hospital care workers or cleaners in hotels are less uniform than once upon a time flat-capped, blue-collar male work was? There's a, I think there's a bunch of cultural assumptions in here that, that have little to do really with the mode of production as such and quite a lot to do with how that is imagined by the organisers who built the labour movement, who were of a certain type, a, a, a certain sort of social identity, in many cases overwhelmingly male, but, but by no means exclusively so. And today, the fact of the matter is that the most highly unionised sectors in most economies, in the West anyway, are not manufacturing or industry, but the public sector, hmm. which is service sector work. And it's there that unions still maintain really historically high levels of unionisation, 30 to 50 to 60% is not uncommon or impossible. 
in those kind of sectors. So in a sense, perhaps it's not to do with technology so much as the historical epoch and the balance of class forces that prevails at that moment. I mean, maybe in the end, it's not so much that America has deindustrialized as, you know, the cat that Warren Buffett let out of the bag a few years back when he said, yes, you know, there is class war in modern America and my side has been waging it and we've won. And that's really ultimately the answer here, not the uh, the question of the sort of work people do, but the power relations which frame the work that people do. Well, it sounds like the kind of quote that could actually spark class consciousness of yeah. the kind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and the fact that he felt free to say it out loud, you know, yeah. if he was sure, actually sure. under some kind of threat, he might yeah. not have said it. Yeah. It's a sign of the times. Yeah. Total, yeah, victory. Yeah, I guess we, we'll see. Obviously, there are uh, some nascent unions budding in the U.S. right now, Amazon, Starbucks, etc. We shall see. But in the meantime, we have to leave it here. Uh, yeah, we will be right back. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about the economics of Ukrainian refugees. The data point we have here is 4.5 million. That is the total number of Ukrainians who have fled the country since the beginning of the war. Hundreds of thousands of people are rushing to flee Ukraine, pouring into train stations, pushing against checkpoints and waiting hours. That amounts to about 10% of the entire pre-war population. That was about 44 million Ukrainians in the country, again, before the war. And so, yeah, we just wanted to dig in and sort of, obviously, this is a humanitarian crisis, but we figured we could try to think about it from an economic perspective, and maybe that would shed some light on the on the humanitarian questions, too. So, Adam, I guess just to start, these 4.5 million People, I mean, should we expect that these Ukrainian refugees will return home? I mean, ever? I mean, what factors play a role in determining whether refugees permanently stay in the places they've landed? I mean, it's probably too early to tell, to be honest. I mean, the drama is unfolding before our eyes. These people fled because the situation where they were was intolerably dangerous and distressing. Most of them have not gone far. They've gone across the border to Poland and for the largest part, they're milling around there trying to figure out how to continue their lives. It must be a profoundly distressing and just completely disconcerting experience. And Polish and Ukrainian are similar languages, but they're not identical. You have to sort out you know, places for the kids to go. Their money doesn't work. Ukrainian money is, is rapidly losing value and exchanges at derisory rates. So it, it's really a critical factor is simply, you know, how bad things get in Ukraine. Do they continue to deteriorate or is there some stabilization? What we did begin to see in the early weeks of April was, in fact, some reverse about, you know, um, the ratio of movement across the border from Poland to Ukraine was about two to one in terms of two for every two Ukrainians that were leaving Ukraine to find refuge in Poland, one was going back, maybe for the short term, maybe for the long term, it's virtually impossible to tell. But that was also, of course, the period of lull when the Russians began to withdraw from around Kiev and relocate their forces for what we think will be the decisive next phase of the operation in the east, from which one would then expect a new wave of, of refugees who could become displaced within Ukraine, which is where the majority of people are displaced right now, or might flee further to the West. 
I mean, fundamentally, you know, big crises like this have big causes. So when you're when you're talking about movements of this number of people in the past, we're talking about epic state crises. So if you think about, you know, the 6.7 million Syrians that have fled the country or approximately the same number of Afghans that have fled since the 1980s, um, or the very large number of people who are, have fled Venezuela and are now largely in Colombia. In each of those cases, the reasons for the, the flight are profound disruption. And so it can take years, if not decades, for people to flow back. But, but the flows can be large. So we think that in 2021, believe it or not, about a million Afghans went back to Afghanistan, presumably people more closely allied with the Taliban who wanted to go back at that stage. Hmm. So these populations will flux back and forth, and, and we shouldn't expect a quick resolution of this issue. And certainly it would be awful if pressure was exerted on the Ukrainians to return sooner than they are comfortable with. Uh, I mean, just to think this through, I mean, would there potentially be benefits to Ukraine of having refugees stay abroad? I mean, in, in a more general sense, I mean, to phrase it that way, are there benefits to having a diaspora, you know, and a larger diaspora than you otherwise would have? I think it's a very complex question. I mean, on, you know, the nationalist, the patriot, of course, says, you know, we want everyone at home. But de facto, given the state of the Ukrainian economy before the crisis, around about three million Ukrainians are estimated to have been working in the EU in any given year, in Poland, in the Czech Republic, in Italy, and so on. And they generate a very substantial flow of remittances, which were rather important for the Ukrainian economy. I mean, billions and billions of, of dollars every year. And on top of that, of course, because of Ukraine's dramatic and sometimes violent history over the last 100 plus years, there is already a gigantic Ukrainian diaspora all over the world somewhere. It depends how you count. And diasporas are always hard to count. Now, how many generations you know, do you still continue to reckon are diasporic? Mm. But it's between six and 20 million people, at least all over the the world and, and apparently in 100 countries plus, but there's a large Ukrainian diaspora, obviously, in the United States and in, in Canada as well, I believe. Do these, do these diasporas help countries? Well, in certain respects, of course, they can be profoundly influential. The most dramatic instance of this, of course, is, is Israel, where the weight of the Jewish diaspora in the United States is a key precondition for the survival of the, of the Israeli state. But at various points in their history, the Irish diaspora has been very influential in tying the United States to the fate of the Irish Republic and say in the peace accords of the 1990s it was absolutely vital that the Americans could credibly threaten the British by saying, look, this actually does matter in our politics. Believe us when we say we are serious about brokering this peace. Um, and I think there are moments right now where Ukrainians imagine that that might be that sort of future might be the future of their state as well, that they've, they've literally invoked the example of Israel as the sort of state which they imagine or perhaps even hope they could end up being a kind of privileged partner of the West and particularly the United States. So diasporas are, yes, they're transformative forces, potentially. To look at this from the other end, I said at the top, the number of refugees amount to 10% of the pre-war population. How does that affect the, the, the home economy? I mean, is there a point at which so many people are displaced in a short period of time that, that a country's economy just ceases to be viable? I mean, how, how does the Ukrainian economy work when this many people are refugees in, in this short a time? I think right now it's very difficult to tell because the state of the Ukrainian economy is so disrupted. I mean, it's an essentially in free fall. 
but there's no doubt at all i think that it's extremely damaging and it makes it very difficult to secure you know regular service i mean many of these people would have made very complex moral choices ethical choices about whether they needed to stay or whether they whether they felt that their labor was not essential and we know you know of, of so many heroic choices people have made to stay and stay in hospitals and so on to maintain essential services as a speaking as you know from an economic point of view there are two ways of dealing with this you know one the, the extreme case is something like the former you know, communist uh, GDR, the East, the East German communist part of Germany after World War II, where they had hemorrhaged, especially skilled labor through the 1950s. And that made it very difficult to maintain sophisticated industrial production, hospitals, uh, keep hospitals running, offices, because you just never knew on any given Monday morning who was going to show up for work. Hmm. And their response to that was draconian, of course, to build the Berlin Wall and to close in their population which, amongst other things, established a regularity of labor supply. The economist's answer, you might say, is, well, and the alternative to that is to allow wages and prices to adjust. And when we have seen very rapid movements of population, say mm. Poland in the early 2000s, when hundreds of thousands of skilled Polish workers left Poland to go and work, notably in the United Kingdom, which had an open access policy at that time, unlike the rest of the EU, what the response that you saw there was a quite rapid adjustment in wages in Poland, and so, you know, as that labor became scarcer, it was valued more highly at home. And, and that was one of the ways in which migration actually assisted the development and mm. relative convergence of the Polish economy. We've seen that in several different historical episodes. But as an economist, those are the two, you know, you can either impose blanket bans and, and prohibitions or you can use the price mechanism. But a sudden shock like the one the Ukraine is suffering is hard to adjust away in any case. So refugees in terms of the host countries must be a short-term cost. There's housing and all sorts of short-term needs that need to be provided for. But in the long term, I imagine that they contribute to overall economic growth. In fact, they stick around. I mean, is it possible to calculate the average time, say, when, when refugees, again, I mean, just to put this in scare quotes, when they, when they begin to pay off to host countries? Yeah, I mean, this, this is a really interesting problem for economic analysis. I mean, a Keynesian would say, you know, broadly speaking, our economies are always under stimulated, right? There's not enough demand. So anything, good, bad, negative, neutral, any event that causes us to spend more will generate more economic output. So one of the things that you see in countries which are receiving migrants is that uh, on refugees is that they generate a shock of government spending to accommodate them. And that stimulates the economy. So it gen generally mm. tends to produce an mm. acceleration of economic activity in, in the border towns of Poland and Ukraine. Accommodation will suddenly become very scarce if you are a property owner there and you have an apartment to let and um, you're going to make good mm. money at moments like that. This was true also of the the Syrian refugee crisis of 1516, where we saw a huge surge in the economy of all of the Turkish coastal towns through which the, the refugees moved. The impact of all of that is, to, is for refugee crises to stimulate economic activity in a general sense. In the longer run, as refugees settle down, what we can do is we can track their absorption into the economy and the progress of their incomes. And if you do that over a long period of time in the United States, for instance, you see that refugees on average outperform the similar trajectories of people who start in the American labor market, you know, just at the beginning of their careers. So refugees end up with slightly above average incomes over the long haul. Another thing you can do is look at the employment opportunities that refugees create for themselves. Often refugees communities are extremely entrepreneurial. 
And all of this, of course, depends essentially on the circumstances of the country into which the refugees are fleeing and the policy and the broader social and economic response to them when they get there, whether it's welcoming or prohibitive and exclusionary. And the gold standard right now, notably in relation to the Syrian refugee crisis, has in fact been Turkey, which pursued a relatively open policy towards the Syrian refugees, accommodated them into the Turkish economy, and they've become a major driver of business foundation that's thought that over 10,000 firms in Turkey right now are being operated by Syrian refugees. And they're doing it, of course, in regions that were always closely interconnected with between Turkey and Syria. So that assists. They they essentially just move their location from the Syrian side to the Turkish side of the border and in many ways then continue in the same branches of business they were in. So we have a gamut of experiences there, but none of that can take place really unless the host society is willing to treat this as an opportunity rather than a huge burden. Just to end off here, Adam, I mean, if and when Ukraine's refugees do return home. I mean, should we expect that they would pick up their lives where they left off? How much should we be expecting Ukraine's economy to be transformed by this war? I think it's very dramatic. And again, it's too early to really tell the overall impact of this. But what's clear is the Ukraine is suffering extraordinary damage and loss as a result of the the Russian invasion. I mean, the Ukrainian economists are beginning to put figures on this. They think that the property damage so far runs to about 80 billion, which is about half of pre-war Ukrainian GDP. The economy is in freefall right now. The currency is collapsing. The Ukrainian state cannot provide enough tax revenue to support the war effort. Output is contracting. Businesses are closing right, left and center, as they obviously must. Electricity consumption is down because the businesses are closing. The the economy shows all the signs of an economy simply dramatically contracting. Ukraine is not in a position to organize a total war effort in the sense that, you know, we saw in World War II. It's, it's, It's struggling to deal with this unanticipated shock. It's conceivable over a matter of months that they would be able to stabilize the economy under war conditions and then begin to think World War II style about reallocating resources and so on. But we're not in that situation right now. I mean, it's simply a scramble for survival. The crucial weapons are largely being imported and denoted from abroad. Ukraine is continuing to service its debts, the debts it owes to international creditors, presumably to maintain goodwill. But but it's obvious, I think, that that's money that's just circulating around because Ukraine will not be able to survive without substantial financial aid. So all of that tells you that when hopefully this conflict ends, the refugees will not be returning to the same place. In fact, in many ways, its situation will be even worse. So it's a very difficult question, I think. And this is true for all of the great crisis areas of the world right now. I mean, the the Syrian war has left a gigantic legacy of destruction which we have not even begun to seriously contemplate the reconstruction of. And and Afghanistan is, as we speak, tumbling towards the world's worst humanitarian Hmm. disaster with half the population on the brink of famine. So this question of what happens after is the really big one. And it's very, very difficult to... I mean, there are a few examples in history of it going well. There are some, but they but they are few and far between, and and they require very considerable outside assistance for this story to take a happy turn. I have a feeling uh, this won't be the last time we're talking about the Ukrainian economy. And yeah, who knows? Maybe we'll be have occasion to talk about Ukrainian refugees again. 
But yeah, for now, I think this is a pretty good summary of where things stand. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week.